2: This is an apostrophe podcast production.
1: to inform you the rejection podcast i thought finally my career is made and again i was disappointed i didn't do a movie for 7 years rita moreno Rita Moreno says she learned early on that getting attention was a really nice thing. Of course, back then she went by Rosa, Rosa Dolores Alvario, and she lived in Juncos, Puerto Rico. She says growing up on the edge of a rainforest, shoes were not required. She and the other local kids would play barefoot in a creek while their mothers beat laundry against the rocks. She'd splash, she'd dance, she'd sing, and she'd tell stories loudly enough for the children downstream to hear. They lived close to her beloved grandparents. Days were spent in the sunshine, nights dancing around the living room to her grandfather's records. But by 1936, when Rosa Alvario was just five years old, her entire world changed. Her parents divorced, and her mother sought a, quote, better life for her and her daughter. So, one February day, the pair boarded the SS Carababo, headed due north to America. The journey was choppy. The already nervous sick Alverio became sick in every sense of the word. But as the ship rounded the pier into New York Harbor, the five-year-old looked up, and there she saw a giant green statue of the President of the United States holding an ice cream cone in the air. Or so she thought. But beyond the patinaed symbol of freedom, Alverio saw a concrete jungle, nothing like the lush rainforest she was used to. She said... It felt like a reverse Oz. A better life ahead? She wasn't so sure. 1936 was the depths of the Great Depression, and the scarcity of both jobs and resources fueled a surge in hostility toward immigrants. The U.S. government had begun a program of repatriating Mexican immigrants, often by bribe or coercion. The Library of Congress states that some U.S. citizens were deported simply on suspicion of being Mexican. So, a vaguely Hispanic-looking person, or a Spanish-speaking person at that time, was vulnerable to a multitude of abuses. Alvario didn't know a word of English when she arrived in Manhattan that day. She would be the only Hispanic student in her kindergarten class. But even then, she figured out pretty quickly that the words being shouted at her on her walks home from school were bad words. She didn't understand them, but she didn't need to. At five years old, she learned she was a target. She learned which blocks to avoid, to zigzag her way home for lunch. But above all, she learned to become ashamed of her ethnicity, that someone like her mustn't hold much value. In the safety of their apartment, Alverio and her mother would dance to records— Her mother would sew her outfits and watch her daughter bop down the halls looking like a little doll. And one day, her mother decided that little doll should enroll in dance lessons. Spanish dance lessons. So, she did. And at age six, Rosa Alverio made her professional debut at a Greenwich Village nightclub. Dance was a pocket of pure escapism in her life. So she started tap dancing and ballet dancing, too. By her tweens, Alverio was a fixture at several New York nightclubs. Soon she started voice acting, doing radio plays during one station's Ave Maria hour, and dubbing over English films in need of Hispanic voices. Then, at age 13, she made her Broadway debut. It was a play called Sky Drift. A quick search of the play Sky Drift reveals it premiered at the famed Belasco Theater on November 13, 1945. It closed four days later. In her mid-teens, Alverio was cast in her very first movie. She played a juvenile delinquent in an independent film called So Young, So Bad. And it solidified her future. She would be a film actress. Alverio quickly became the family breadwinner. She dropped out of high school and began dancing full-time. Not only in New York, but Philadelphia, Boston, and Montreal. Of course, she was an unaccompanied minor. So, if and when a police officer appeared, the owners would swaddle her in a mink coat and whisk her into a booth. Nothing to see here. Then one day, after a formal dance recital, a talent scout spotted the young triple threat. So he made his way backstage and handed her mother his business card. It read, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. He told them that Louis B. Mayer was in town and Rosa Alverio should meet him. Alverio had no true role models to look up to. No one that looked like her was doing what she wanted to do. Rita Hayworth was the mega-movie star of the 1940s. Hayworth was Hispanic. Her father hailed from Seville, Spain. In fact, her real name was Margarita Cancino. But Hollywood whitewashed the actress, eliminating any traces of her ethnicity She underwent two years of painful electrolysis to raise her hairline. Her dark hair was then bleached and dyed red. She was put on strict diets and given elocution lessons. Then, the head of Columbia Pictures changed her name to Rita Hayworth, a variation of her Irish mother's maiden name the Smithsonian writes that Hollywood would capitalize off Hayworth's ambiguous ethnicity, playing into her American wholesomeness or Spanish sex appeal wherever the industry saw fit. Like all girls her age, Alverio looked up to Elizabeth Taylor. They were just one year apart, but she was already becoming one of the biggest names in Hollywood. So, Alvario filled in her eyebrows dark. She put on red lipstick. She styled her dark locks wavy and short, and she slid on a corset. Elizabeth Taylor had an impossibly tiny waist. And with the MGM talent scouts business card in hand, Alvario and her mother made their way to the Waldorf Astoria to meet Louis B. Mayer at his penthouse apartment. Alverio and her mother had never been to a hotel before, let alone the Waldorf Astoria. They had to ask the front desk how to get to the penthouse. The concierge told them to simply step into the elevator and press the button labeled PH. When they got to the top, the doors parted and there stood the film studio giant. He took one look at Alverio and said... My God, she looks just like a Spanish Elizabeth Taylor. And without seeing her read so much as a line, Mayer signed Alvaro to a seven-year contract with MGM. This was the man behind Meet Me in St. Louis, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. She envisioned the yellow brick road leading her straight to Hollywood. But first it was decided she'd need a new name. Rosa Dolores Alvario wouldn't do. So they chose Moreno as her last name because it was the last name of her new stepfather and Rita after one Rita Hayworth. Six months later, Rita Moreno arrived in Los Angeles. At her first day on the MGM lot, Moreno was given a tour of the studios. She said it was unspeakably exciting. Along the way, she met Ann Miller, Clark Gable, Ava Gardner, and Esther Williams. Then she was assigned her very first movie, The Toast of New Orleans, a musical about a rough-around-the-edges fisherman groomed to become a respectable opera singer. Moreno would play a supporting role. She couldn't believe it. All of that in just one day. Then, Moreno walked into the MGM cafeteria. And there, she saw Lana Turner. And Elizabeth Taylor. She nearly had a heart attack. But Moreno says, aside from the famous faces who shook her hand, smiled, and said a brief hello people weren't very friendly to her at MGM. They'd sort of just look the other way. The same year as the Toast of New Orleans, she was given another supporting role in Pagan Love Song, starring Esther Williams. But for both parts, Moreno was playing a generic, quote, ethnic girl. She said in her documentary, Rita Moreno, just a girl who decided to go for it. But back then, people like her were cast as native girls with accents, often characters treated as illiterate, immoral, or men's little island girls. Her skin was caked in makeup far too dark for her complexion. It was degrading. But on the other hand, she also told herself she was an actress. She was supposed to be able to play any character, to set her own feelings aside and shapeshift as needed. So she put her head down, and she played both parts as best she could. Then Moreno got word. MGM terminated her contract. Moreno thought she had another three plus years at MGM, but she said, simply, they didn't know what to do with her. She had a Hispanic look, and there were only so many ethnic parts. She said Ricardo Montalban didn't have that same problem. He could be a sexy Latin leading man, but there were zero roles for a Latin leading woman. It was unimaginable at that time. The truth was, there were countless characters a Latina actress could play, including Hispanic characters with depth and dignity, or characters whose ethnicities were inconsequential to the storyline. But MGM wasn't interested in those characters. She was devastated and heartbroken. Be right
0: back.
1: Hey, did you know Apostrophe has a YouTube channel? You can listen to We Regret to Inform You and Under the Influence anytime. Just tap the link in this episode's description. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't
0: stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: In 1952, Moreno was cast in a film called Singin' in the Rain, starring Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds. The 20-year-old would play Zelda Zanders, a flapper socialite and silent movie star on her ninth marriage. It was a small part, but to Moreno's utter delight, a non-ethnic character. She says she was cast because Gene Kelly could see beyond her ethnicity. He could see her talent. And to be in a film with dance legend Kelly was a dream come true. Moreno had worshiped him for years. She would be there when Gene Kelly rehearsed the choreography for the film's title song, So Hard, he developed a cold from, well, all the singing in the rain. She watched from the wings as Donald O'Connor made him laugh with nothing but a wall, a green couch, and an unrivaled gift for physical comedy. The film was a massive success. It would receive two Academy Award nominations, one Golden Globe, and is considered by many to be the greatest Hollywood musical ever made. To this day, and for Rita Moreno, It was proof that she could be cast in a role based solely on her abilities. She didn't have to accept degrading parts anymore. She thought, this is going to change everything. In the winter of 1954, Rita Moreno appeared on the cover of Life magazine. She'd been rehearsing a new television show starring Ray Bolger, a.k.a. the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. The show didn't go anywhere, but a life photographer had been sent one day to document the rehearsal process. And when he returned to Life HQ, someone spotted Moreno in one of his shots and said, "'Who's that girl?' And that's how the 22-year-old appeared black and white and bare-shouldered on the March cover. Beside the headline, Rita Moreno, an actress's catalogue of sex and innocence. Moreno was thrilled. But she'd be even more thrilled when she found out who'd picked up a copy. While Moreno ran around town buying copies for her friends and family— Daryl F. Zanuck, 20th Century Fox's co-founder and legendary film producer behind The Grapes of Wrath and All About Eve, reportedly saw the cover and said, Get me that girl. Can she speak English? Zanuck signed Marino to a seven-year deal at 20th Century Fox. And over the next few years, she was given parts. But they were nothing like singing in the rain. In 1954, she would play a Native American girl in The Yellow Tomahawk. In 1955, she played another Native girl, the mistress of a white man in Seven Cities of Gold. And in 1956... She'd play a Burmese concubine in The King and I. The King and I would go on to be a hit, but it brought Moreno little joy. They did her makeup to try to make her look Asian. Her accent was totally ambiguous, but nobody noticed. And her entire role was comprised of staring wistfully into the distance. In fact, prior to filming... The star, Yul Brynner, called Moreno and told her that her role was really boring. He said, "You're just a soubrette. All you do is pine and look sad because you can't have your lover." He was right. Moreno said in her documentary that these parts she was being given were impossible to play interestingly. There was nothing to them. She wanted to turn them down, but they were the only roles she was offered, and she had to make a living. She felt stuck. For the rest of her life, this is who she was going to have to be. The pining concubine. The Native American mistress. The island girl. One day, Moreno was sent by the higher-ups at 20th Century Fox to an afternoon cocktail party. Actress Mitzi Gaynor said any time a young actress was photographed on the arm of industry folk, it was good for the studio's publicity. Well, at that party, Moreno was introduced to the head of Columbia Studios, Harry Cohn. But within seconds of meeting... Cone made vulgar sexual comments toward Moreno, brazenly, as though dozens of people were not within earshot. Then the host of the party, a distillery owner, asked Moreno to dance. And as the pair made their way onto the dance floor, he began pressing his body aggressively into hers. Then... Undeterred by her discomfort, he too made crude sexual comments toward her. Moreno ran out of the party and into the garden. With tears in her eyes, she found a group of gardeners and told them she needed their help. They were Mexican. One of them put his jacket over his shoulders. Moreno said they didn't need an explanation. They knew. And they drove her home. They were the only gentlemen she'd encountered all day. Back when Moreno was filming The King and I, the film's choreographer Jeremy Robbins let her know he was working on a new Broadway musical with Stephen Sondheim, and he suggested she come audition. The musical was a modern-day take on Romeo and Juliet, But instead of Verona, this play took place on the streets of Upper West Side, New York. And instead of the Montagues and the Capulets, it was rival street gangs, the Sharks and the Jets. The Jets, white Americans. The Sharks, Puerto Ricans. And when the former leader of the Jets falls for the leader of the Sharks' younger sister, forbidden love ends in tragedy. It would be called West Side Story. Robbins wanted Moreno to fly to New York and audition for the female lead, Maria, the Juliet character. But when the time came to hop on a plane, she got cold feet. She was a film actor, afraid she couldn't carry a play. The role was cast, the play was a hit. And as all of Manhattan filed into the Winter Garden Theatre across the show's 732 performances, Moreno made the trip. She sat in the audience and she thought, I made a big mistake. A few years later, Jeremy Robbins decided to turn the hit play into a movie. And when it came time to cast... Knew who to call. But by this point, Moreno was nearing 30 years old. The lead characters, like Romeo and Juliet, were meant to be teenagers. She was a little long in the tooth to play Maria, but she could play Anita, girlfriend of Shark's leader Bernardo. Anita was Puerto Rican, and she was multifaceted. She had strong opinions. She was Latina, but she wasn't a sex object. She was respected. Moreno completed the first audition, singing. Then the next audition, acting, which also went, quote, very, very, very well. But there would have to be a third audition, dancing. Robbins told her he really liked her for the part. But if she didn't nail the audition, his hands were tied. With the sheer volume of other actresses auditioning for the role and the three audition minimum, Moreno had a whole month to prepare. She may have begun her career dancing in New York nightclubs, but by this point, she hadn't actually danced in years. So she pirouetted straight to her nearest dance school. There, she would take dance classes from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day until she was blue in the face. And she says it paid off. Come her final audition, she nailed the part. Moreno was beyond thrilled. But just before she signed her contract for West Side Story, to her horror, she recalled one lyric from the play. A lyric she could never, ever say. In the song America, two Puerto Rican characters debate the complexities of being an immigrant in their adopted country. The song is basically a back and forth, a dialogue between Moreno's character Anita and her boyfriend Bernardo. Anita is very pro-America, whereas Bernardo is quick to point out the American dream isn't all it's cracked up to be, especially if you're not all-white in America. But there was one lyric that opened the number, where Anita is meant to say, Puerto Rico, you ugly island, island of tropic diseases. And Moreno simply could not bring herself to utter those words. She said she couldn't bear the thought of doing that to her people. What would they think? She would have to back out of the role. A role that was perfect for her. The fate of her career was in her hands. And she was about to walk away. Her agent was going to kill her. But just as she began to cry, over a decade's worth of pent-up tears, a new script arrived. It was the latest draft from Stephen Sondheim. And as Moreno flipped through the pages, she noticed he'd changed the lyrics to America. Now it said, Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion let it sink back in the ocean. Moreno would still get flack for the line, but she defends it, saying it was not her point of view, it was Anita's, and it was written in order to illustrate the internal conflict so many immigrants face. And she signed the contract. Moreno was over the moon, excited to play the part of a Puerto Rican character. Finally, she wouldn't need makeup to alter her skin tone. But she would be wrong about that. The makeup artists on set caked her and her co-stars in dark, thick foundation. Their idea of Puerto Rican skin. But, alas... On December 13th, 1961, West Side Story premiered. And Moreno gave her co star George Shakiris a pep talk. She took his arm and said, Look, I don't want you to be disappointed, but this is not going to be a hit. When he asked why she felt that way, her answer was threefold. One, the costumes didn't feature a single sequin. Two, said sequinless costumes were all dark colors like maroon. And three, they weren't singing in operatic voices. To sum up, it was going to be a flop, and she couldn't imagine anyone paying $4 to see it. The following April was the 34th Annual Academy Awards. And to her shock, West Side Story was nominated in 11 categories, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Chakiris, and Best Supporting Actress for Moreno. But still, on the drive over to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on Oscar night, once again Moreno tempered her co-star's expectations. They even practiced their gracious loser faces together. Best Supporting Actress was a tough category. Moreno was against Judy Garland. But that night, West Side Story would win 10 out of its 11 nominations. Best Picture... Best Director, Best Score, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing. Best Supporting Actor went to Shakiris. And Best Supporting Actress went to Rita Moreno. Making Moreno the first Latina actress in history to win an Academy Award. She was floored. the Hispanic community in New York City went wild, waiting with bated breath by the television set, then sticking their heads out of windows and screaming, she did it. West Side Story would become the second highest grossing film of 1961 and set the record for most wins by a musical in Oscar history. Now, Moreno was a movie star, just like Elizabeth Taylor, who'd won her first Oscar just one year prior, Moreno would also take home the Golden Globe for best supporting role. But following West Side Story, when Moreno's career should have been set on fire, the phone didn't ring. She said it was as though she'd never won an Oscar. Nobody cared. She did get the odd offer for Vaguely Ethnic Brothel Madam, but this time she said no. She tucked her little gold man under her arm and said she wasn't going to do that stuff anymore. The damage to her self-esteem wasn't worth it. And with that door firmly closed, despite every other door for every other type of role swung wide open the Academy Award-winning actress didn't do another film for seven years. Moreno went back to dancing in nightclubs, just as she had at 16 years old. She made guest appearances on television shows. She performed on Broadway, though the play lasted only a week so she performed off-Broadway and in London's West End. In 1965, Moreno got married to a cardiologist named Leonard Gordon. The following year, they welcomed a daughter, Fernanda. Then in 1969, Marlon Brando offered her a role in his latest film, The Night of the Following Day. But the producers didn't want Moreno. The pair had dated on and off 15 years earlier in a tempestuous eight-year relationship. But Brando knew now she was out of work, and he fought hard for her. The producers, begrudgingly, relented, and she landed the part, marking her return to film after nearly a decade. That same year... She'd land Poppy, alongside Alan Arkin, and Marlowe, the film that would introduce Bruce Lee to American audiences. Then in 1971, she landed the part of a sex worker in Carnal Knowledge, starring Jack Nicholson. And in spite of the part... Moreno says carnal knowledge was one of the only roles in her entire career where she played someone of no particular background. As Glamour Magazine put it, for once she was cast as Rita Moreno, actress, and not Rita Moreno, Puerto Rican actress. In 1971, Moreno was offered a part in a sketch show called The Electric Company. It was a brand new children's series from the creators of Sesame Street. Moreno's agent begged her not to take the part. A film actor doing a PBS children's show? The Kiss of Death. They told her it signaled to the world she was out of work. Some actors... Don't come back from this. But it was an ensemble cast, including Morgan Freeman and Bill Cosby. And Moreno respected the children's television workshop. Her daughter watched Sesame Street. So she accepted the gig. The electric company would incorporate guest appearances into its sketches, influencing future shows like Saturday Night Live and SCTV and after its very first year, Moreno earned herself a Grammy Award for Best Album for Children. In 1975, playwright Terence McNally wrote a part for Moreno. It was based on a character Moreno created one night at a party, an over-the-top Puerto Rican actress, blissfully unaware of just how untalented she was Complete with a ridiculous accent, illuminating the many stereotypes she'd been forced to play into throughout her career. Moreno said she'd actually come to have love for this character. The play would be called The Ritz, and Moreno would win a Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play, the only Tony nomination The Ritz would receive. In her acceptance speech, she said, Rita Moreno is thrilled, but Rosa Dolores Alvario from Puerto Rico is undone. In 1976, Moreno made a guest appearance on The Muppet Show after meeting Jim Henson one day at a coffee shop. She'd sing Fever, popularized by Peggy Lee, a sultry song sung by a sultry actress accompanied by a furry pink Muppet on drums. It was juxtaposition comedy gold, and a spot for which Moreno would win herself her very first Emmy Award. And if you are keeping score, you may have noticed that By 1977, Moreno had won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. By 46 years old. And the actress, the singer, and the dancer, who immigrated to America in search of opportunity, but who was dropped by her first studio, sexually harassed by executives, and forced to accept role after role that reduced her to an object of men's desire, who was discarded by Hollywood even after winning an Academy Award, and who spent her entire career typecast, or simply not cast, based solely on her ethnicity, would become the first Hispanic person in history to achieve the coveted and distinguished EGOT Status Rita Moreno, just a girl who decided to go for it.
2: This podcast is all about surviving. It's about facing debilitating career rejection, then crashing through the obstacles and succeeding against all odds. And it's easy to look at these amazing people who have overcome so much and assume they must have some sort of superhuman ability to remain unaffected, to let rejection bounce off them as they barrel their way towards fame and fortune. But to make that assumption is to overlook reality. And that reality is worth talking about. When Rita Morena was only given meaningless parts, it was heartbreaking. When she had to withstand crude sexual remarks from powerful men, it was devastating. When she was made to hide her ethnicity, she felt ashamed. After she won the Oscar and didn't find film work again for seven years, she was depressed. And when she turned 40 and faced ageism, she cried her heart out. Through it all, she let herself feel the pain. She let herself collapse. She let herself get it all out. And nobody ever really talks about that part. The part where you feel your self-worth is so low, so beaten down, that you question everything. And in spite of it all, Rita Moreno picked herself up, dusted herself off, and kept moving forward. She isn't superwoman. She is a sensitive artist who feels it all. So, even when you hear these stories of triumph, remember that victories come with wounds. That it's okay to break down. It's not a sign of weakness to feel depressed. You have to fail to practice being Brave. Even after becoming the first Hispanic woman to win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, Rita Moreno has to fight for work. Her first professional job was at six years of age. Today, she is 91 years old and still working. Never, ever give up.
0: Rita Moreno, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, 1995. Library of Congress Living Legends Award, 2000. Presidential Medal of Freedom, 2004. Inducted into the Great American Songbook Hall of Fame, 2013. Kennedy Center Honors Award, 2015. Body Career Achievement Award 2019.
1: The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream Mobile Recording Studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. We don't regret to inform you our tunes are provided by APM Music, and we're powered by ACAST. The major source for this episode is the documentary Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. Other major sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Taraji P. Henson from Season 1. Henson is an Academy Award-nominated actress known for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Hidden Figures and her iconic role as Cookie in the hit series Empire. But before taking Hollywood by storm, Henson was rejected for roles, told by casting director she was too urban and nearly becoming stereotyped into oblivion. Sound familiar? You can follow our network on social at apostrophepod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time!
2: Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com
1: and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit eBay.com for terms.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quince.